What does that mean? Well, we're part of the, uh, the Journey Following Jesus series. We're, we're working through the life of Christ here and trying to see where he's ministering, what he's doing, and how he's developing his disciples. And we come to a curious transition. We're about two years into Jesus' ministry, not quite uh, a little over two years, not quite a year until uh, the cross comes up here. And Jesus realizes that he needs to take his disciples from just knowing about him to being sure that they knew who he was. And we see in verse 21 from what was read for us that at this time, Jesus began, from this time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. This is a transition point where he wants, to real, he wants his disciples to realize who he is, and he's going to focus his ministry on his disciples. He has spent a good bit of time up in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, working with the crowds and, and doing all these things, and now he's going to begin to focus on his disciples. And so some of the lessons that we get today and as we go forward, we'll see what this is all about. And so Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now how do we know that he takes them to Caesarea Philippi? You folks are going to become Bible scholars here. Because it says in the first verse that was read for us, verse 21, that they went to Caesarea Philippi. And one of the interesting things that you can find out about Scripture, about God's Word, is that when it mentions places, they are actual places. This is part of how we understand that the Bible is true. It's historical. You can find these places actually as you go through uh, Israel at this time, you, you could see it. And we have a picture up here of Caesarea Philippi. It's about 45 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. This is the furthest north that Jesus goes with his disciples. And you can see there in that picture, hopefully you, you can see, that kind of in the center, just above, uh, above the midpoint, there's a large cave. And this was considered to be a special holy place and if you take the foundations and the ruins that are, that are here, some artists have drawn renditions of what this probably looked like at the time that Jesus was there. The Greek culture, the Roman culture, had built a number of temples. And so you can see it would be in the lower left part, there's a large temple that's built over the mouth of that large cave. The Greek culture, the Roman people thought that that cave was the entrance to Hades, the entrance to hell. And so Jesus brings his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, northern Israel, to this pagan worship site where there were temples to various gods. One of the gods that was worshipped there was Pan. You probably remember him from, from your, I'm sure you remember him from your grade 7 history in America. I don't know what grade they do it here, but um, he was that god that was half man, half goat. Played the flute, and we think of him as this nice character. But he was part of the pagan worship that went on there, that Jesus was taking his disciples 
to contrast himself with what was going on in the world around him. There was much evil sacrifice that went on there, sexual sacrifice, even human sacrifice, where they would cast the bodies into that cave. And it was a horrible place. I'm sure the disciples wondered what they're doing there. And, and we don't know exactly, but we're going to, going to look at some of these things and see what Jesus taught in this place. And Jesus has his disciples there. I don't know where they're standing at this point, if they're up on the hill or down towards the bottom. By the way, down towards the bottom, there were springs that came out of this, uh, and that's where the Jordan River starts. The Jordan River starts at the springs there that come out of these, these caves. And the very first thing that we find Jesus saying is he says, Who do people say that I am? He's sort of taking a popularity poll, you know, 97% of people say that you are this, or a certain percentage say that you are this. That's the way it would be done today. But who do people say that I am? And you notice that a number of answers came forward. A number of answers came forward as to who Jesus was. Maybe he was an Old Testament prophet. But Jesus is not concerned with what the popular opinion is of who he is. He doesn't take a popularity poll. And this is one of the things that I want to say, that when we start discussing the Bible, and we have different opinions, and we want to know what does God's Word say, a good place to look is in God's Word. When we have our community groups or we have different groups and we're discussing what's going on here, the answer has to line up with God's Word. So reread God's Word, check it out, see what it says, because that's exactly what Jesus says. He's not taking an opinion poll on who He is. Because the popular opinion may be wrong. So Jesus says to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Another Bible study tool, when you see the word but, it's a contrast. It's different from what was said before. What do you say? It's different than the popular opinion. Who do you say that I am? Now, how could... They, how could his disciples give a different answer than the crowd? How could the disciples say anything different than what was said in the popular media of the day? Jesus expected his followers to know a different answer because they had spent time with Jesus. As you spend time with Jesus, you get to know him. You understand who He is. You understand that He's different. You see, the popular opinion could have said that Jesus is like these many other gods. These many other temples that are there. Why? I mean, it's just a religious ceremony. It's to make us feel good. It's to talk to the afterlife or the, or the, the underworld or something like that. And Jesus is just one more worldview that fits in with everything else. And we hear that a lot in popular culture. Jesus is just one more God. 
But I'm sure that as the disciples looked around at the, the temples that were there, they knew that Jesus was different. They knew who he was. And so the idea that all worldviews are essentially the same, there's just minor differences according to where you grew up or what language you speak or those kinds of things, means that you probably haven't looked at it enough because the disciples would have quickly said, you are different than the gods around. And so what did Peter say? Peter, it's amazing, you know, you ask a question, who's going to answer? Of the 12 disciples, it's going to be, Peter jumps in there. You know, hey Jesus, is that you walking on water? I'm going to get out of the boat. Okay? Peter's going to jump in and say things. And so it's, it's interesting that we have Peter's answers. It's also interesting to see Peter as he's being formed and developed here by God as Jesus is walking with him, forming him as a disciple. Because one of the things that we get with Peter is we get to see his life through the book of Acts as he grows and matures and develops, and then in the books of First and Second Peter as he's giving advice to others. So Peter's experiencing it. We have Peter very, very raw sometimes, very upfront. And what does he say? He says, you are the Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Messiah is a, a, a Hebrew word, the anointed one, the one that we've been expecting, the one who's been written about throughout the Old Testament, the one who for hundreds of years the Jewish people have been expecting. And so in one simple word, Peter connects Jesus, this man standing before him, with the Messiah. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The Son. He understands the relationship between Jesus, between the Father, between the Holy Spirit. This complexity of the Trinity Jesus was fully God and fully man during his time on earth. And so you're the Messiah. You're the Son, a part of the Trinity, of the living God. Do you see the contrast between the living God and the stones that were there in Caesarea Philippi? A cold, dead stone. And what does Jesus say to this answer by Peter? He says, blessed are you. He affirms that. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus never said that he was God. What does he do with this answer? He says, you're right. You know the answer. You know who I am. And this testimony the answer of knowing who Jesus is becomes the foundation of our faith. Foundation. Rock. Peter's name means rock. They're standing before a mass of stone and rock. And Jesus is saying, like all this that's surrounding us, I am that foundation. This becomes the foundation for our faith in Jesus Christ. Our saving faith. The faith that brings us to know God. 
And Paul expresses it in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Look at how this compares with what Jesus is saying, what's recorded here in Matthew chapter 16. Paul says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's what Peter said, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Peter is saying these things before the cross, before Jesus died on the cross. Paul is summarizing and putting it together post-cross, after the cross. And so what we want to do is declare with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It is interesting that... Uh, let me go back here just a minute. It's interesting that Peter took, or that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi when we see the sharp, the sharp contrast between the thought and the religion of the day and who Jesus was. I don't think it's by any coincidence that Jesus took them to this place to ask them the question, who do you say that I am? And I wonder, this is my curiosity, this is my mind working in saying, what would Jesus do today if he came to Hong Kong and wanted to ask me, ask us the question, who am I? Where would he take you? Where would he take me? Where would he take us? Think about the places in Hong Kong. I couldn't have preached this sermon two years ago. I didn't know Hong Kong very well. Still learning a lot, but I've been around to some places. I wonder, would Jesus take us to a temple or to a gravesite where the living God would be in contrast to the dead? I don't know. But if we're saying that Jesus is just similar to every, everything else and there's really no difference, I think he might want us to see that contrast. I wonder if he might take us over to Central and stand us beside one of those large bank towers. HSBC, China Bank, um, <laughs> the International Finance Center, one of those places. Uh, one of those monuments to uh, the engineering and architecture of Hong Kong and the financial foundation that Hong Kong is to Southeast Asia and China. And while we're standing there, would he say, do people think that they can purchase their salvation? Do you really know who I am? Or I wonder if he might go to one of the universities. And there's several of them. There's not far from here, over on Hong Kong Island, up in the new territories, there's universities. I wonder if he would stand us in the midst of one of those universities and ask us if all the striving from preschool through university all that investment that we give 
will produce the peace that the relationship with God does. Or I wonder if he might take us to a crowded MTR station. You've been there during rush hour. You've seen all the people crying, trying to pack your way in. You have to wait for several trains to come. The busyness, it's interesting to see all that busyness going on. And if he might say, has your busy schedule left room for me? How about a mall? Has anybody been to all the malls in Hong Kong? (laughs) No. (laughs) I find new ones every time I go out. (laughs) There are some fancy malls in Hong Kong. Man, you can get everything from fancy clothes to fancy watches. You can even buy cars in the mall. What about all the electronics, the new gadgets? Would he ask if they've replaced the fulfillment that Jesus wants to give? So I don't know. I don't know what Jesus would say. I don't know where Jesus would take us. But I do know that he wants us to know that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You need to make that fit your culture and your context, your life and your settings. But you need to answer that question. Jesus knew that his disciples needed to answer that question so that they could move on with him. One of the things that unfortunately we see as we work in discipleship is we see people who question their salvation or question their faith or question who God is. And I firmly believe that that's a trick of Satan to hamper us from moving on in the kingdom and what God wants us to do. We need to nail down the question, who is Jesus? Ask myself the question, how do you do that? What are some very practical steps that you can do, that we can do, that I can do, to nail it down so that I know who Jesus is? Quick list for you. What's the purpose of baptism? Baptism is to give an outward sign of the inward commitment. It makes public what's happened in our lives. That sounds like we're nailing it down. We're making a statement. We're saying, Jesus is Lord. I tried to find it. I'm sure I didn't throw it out. But I have a Bible with a light blue cover. This is not it. I have it saved in America. As I, as I went through my belongings and decided what's coming to Hong Kong and what wasn't, I'm sure I saved it, but I just don't know where it is right now. Inside that Bible, it says, I became a child of God, and it gives the date and I signed it. I would encourage you to do something like that. Now, I don't know exactly how you do that in your phone, but uh, we, can, we can give you a Bible here. Somehow, make note. Make something that you can remember. 
Remember the Israelites, when they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, they were to take stones out and they were to make a pile. They were to be standing stones as a reminder of what God had done in your life. Leave those reminders someplace because Satan will want to tempt you with doubt. I'd encourage you to make a public declaration. Share your testimony. Maybe in church, maybe in your community group, someplace. Make it public that you know Jesus. If you haven't written out your testimony of what God's done, I would encourage you to do that. Last week we had a great model of how to do that. This is who I was. This is who I am. Because of Jesus, would you like to hear about it? Follow those steps Put it on one piece of paper. Write out your testimony as to what God has done in your life. You should have a short version, something that you can share in a minute, two minutes at most. You can have an expanded version if you want, but write that testimony out. And something else that we have done multiple times here at AIC, they're usually done in very small groups, one-on-one, or just a few people, is we have an assurance of salvation class. It takes five to six weeks to go through it. We match you up with another believer, someone who's walked through it. If you would like to have the assurance of your salvation so that you can answer the question, who is Jesus? We want you to nail that down and have that as your assurance. So talk to me. Take these steps. Work with your community group. Work the different places where you are. Have this nailed down so that it is not a question and you can move on like Jesus wanted his disciples to do. And so I want to change from talking about saving faith of coming to Jesus and I want to talk about serving faith. What does it mean to serve Jesus Christ. What does it mean to serve God? First of all, I want to say that serving faith is not saving faith. There is nothing you can do to work for your salvation. It's totally a gift from God. You receive salvation as a gift from God because of what Jesus did. And because of that, out of gratitude for what He has done, We obey, we follow, we serve. And so what is serving faith? I'd like you to think about serving faith as as walking forward into the calling of God in every area of your life. Are you willing to serve God in every area of your life? Because what we're doing when we talk about serving faith, if you notice in your scripture, we're going into a different section. We're going, we're going from the section where it said, Who is God? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus starts talking about what it means to serve Him. In, um, in Matthew chapter 21, uh, uh, chapter 16, verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem to receive his crown, to have a big party. No. To suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, and on the third day be raised to life. 
He is letting his disciples know that they will need to follow, that Jesus is going to be crucified, and they will need to follow with who he is. Because it goes from just this thing of, oh, Jesus is going to go to the cross, to Jesus saying in verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. That's a great recruitment plan, isn't it? Okay, I'm looking for people to volunteer, help carry this Christianity on to the 21st century so those people in Hong Kong can hear about it. You're going to have a great time following me. The government's going to like you. Your friends are going to like you. You're going to become very popular. No, he says, you got to take up your cross. What's the cross? It's a crucifixion instrument. It's for the death penalty. You need to take up your cross and follow me. What does this mean? It's not just a Jesus thing. I mean, we look back and we go, yeah, he died. Three days later, he came again. Yeah, that's a Jesus thing. What does that mean for me? What kind of suffering am I going to experience if I sign up here? Well, there's all kinds of interpretations over time. And sometimes people think that, oh, I need to bear my cross I can't be happy. I need to be always suffering for Jesus. I don't think that's where we're going. And sometimes there are people who experience persecution or hardship for their faith. And I don't think that's necessarily what Jesus is talking about here. We do want to pray for our brothers and sisters that are suffering, that are persecuted, that do face hardship for their faith. But I wonder what does it mean that there's going to be suffering if we follow Jesus. I think that taking up your cross means putting aside your own will and making the Father's will primary. Look at what Jesus says. Later on in Matthew, chapter 26, he says, Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup, may this, he's talking about the crucifixion, may this crucifixion, may this cross be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What does he say in John when he talks about his purpose for coming? He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I think when it's talking about the cross here, it's talking about putting God's ways first. Making God first in my life. Now let's take a little bit of illustration of this. Would it seem like a child is bearing some kind of burdensome cross when the parents tell the child to do something that, they're not, that the child wants to do? The child's not the parent says don't do something the child wants to do it. I have some grandchildren. I got to spend time with them in July back in America. It may be the best advice that you can give. Don't play with your bicycle in the street when you're 2 years old. That's good advice from a parent. That's a good thing to say. What does a 2-year-old say? I don't want to. You think the child's bearing its cross. I have this big burden that's being put on me. 
What happens when I have my will and my way of doing things, and it doesn't conform to what my spouse wants or my employer wants or my government wants or some official wants? We suddenly have this thought that it's a burden. It's a cross that I need to bear, where I need a sacrifice to do what they want. But in reality, we're sacrificing for a father who wants the best for us. And so I think this cross is God saying to us, will you live my way? Will you set aside your way and live the way that I want you to? This is what Jesus talked about. We stay, we stay in the book of Matthew. Go to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is outlining a new way of living. He's saying, live this way. Do my Father's will. Look at the Beatitudes. They have a different way of thought. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. And it goes on through there. We look at some of the other things said on the Sermon on the Mount, and we see that we're not supposed to murder or commit adultery. I'm doing good there. Uh-oh. Anger is the same as murder, and lusting is the same as adultery. There's still changing that needs to go on in my life to conform to the cross that Jesus wants me to take. How about Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies. Is that a cross to bear? It doesn't say love your friends, love your family, love the people that like you. It says love your enemies, do good to those who despitefully use you. Another cross. I need to conform to the image that God has for me. What about worry? The Sermon on the Mount says, don't worry. I'm trying to take over an area that God wants. What about my treasures? Are they truly in heaven? Have I conformed to what God wants by giving my treasure to Him? Not just adding Jesus to the shelf of the many gods that I have, but Jesus says, I am the only God on your shelf. That's what I think the cross is. Jesus was doing God the Father's will when he went to the cross. So just a few more things here, but let's look at this. This is really a great exchange. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Or what can someone give in exchange for their soul? It's a great exchange. Learn the exchange, learn what it means to exchange for what God has. So I just want to wrap things up here with looking at how do we succeed? This is an awfully high calling. Calling us to take up our cross, to lay aside our own desires, our wants, and replacing them with what God wants. And once again, I think you can simply look through Scripture and you can see some of what God is talking about. 
In the very next chapter, um, you can look at the slide there, but in the very next chapter it talks about the transfiguration. Jesus and two Old Testament prophets are transfigured and the disciples come and see them. The word transfigured means changed from the inside. They were changed from the inside and the disciples noticed a difference. It's in contrast to the word masquerade. You know the theater masks that they put on over? Masquerade doesn't change anything on the inside, it just changes the outside. One of the key things to take up your cross is to be transfigured or from the same word, transformed. And that may remind you of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's sort of like taking up your cross, isn't it? Living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed from the inside out. Let God change us from the inside out. And so the first step that I say, if you want to live God's way, where you're living, serving faith, and living the way that God wants to, is let God transform you through Jesus Christ, knowing Him as Savior, and then letting Him work, sometimes one step at a time, in your heart, as your life slowly changes. Something else we find Jesus doing in the next couple chapters is praying. Before Jesus went to the cross, He spent time in prayer. Jesus was known to be praying. His disciples knew where to find Him when He was praying. Sometimes He would pray alone and pour out His heart. Sometimes He'd pray with the disciples. Prayer needs to be a part of this bearing the cross. It needs to be a part of your life. Include prayer in this transformation that God wants to do in your life. Something else that we find as we move along in Scripture is we find that the Holy Spirit comes. At this point, the Holy Spirit was not indwelling all believers. The cross hadn't happened yet. But in just a couple months after the cross, the Holy Spirit comes. And we find that recorded in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is God living in us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out and live the way that God wants us to. The Holy Spirit will convict us when we're doing something wrong. The Holy Spirit will empower us to do God's will. Live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then the last suggestion that I have for you is to have church be a regular part of your life. Church is the people, it's not the building. Allow the brothers and sisters that are in this room to come alongside and speak into your life, to assist you during the hard times, to help you as you bear your cross. And I would like to say that church involves more than just showing up. In America, we talk about warming a seat. You don't need to warm the seats here in Hong Kong. They're already warm. It's more than just sitting, sitting here in a, in a chair. It's engaging with God. I would encourage your participation in church, but I would also encourage your service in church. We have the opportunity to minister to children. We need children's workers 
We need youth workers. We need worship leaders. We need people to share the load of the ministry that's going on here. And I would dare say, the moment that you agree to be a leader or a teacher, you will learn more than you ever did as a student. Church needs to be something that's not just when we have time, we'll do it. I think of a, I think of a pie, round pie, an American pie. You cut the pie into slices, kind of look like triangles. Think of a pie that has seven slices. One's labeled Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Guess what? What happens if an eighth person shows up? I know what we'll do. We'll take the seventh slice and give it to that eighth person. They'll get the Sunday slice. No time left for Sunday. We could adjust our entire schedule and take a little bit off of each slice. Or we could take an entire slice and give it to them. What happens when we arrange our lives? Is church an important enough part that it's, you say, don't mess with my slice? Or does church become that thing that is just kind of left on the side and if we have time, we'll fit it in? Think about it. Allow these four things to work in your life. Have them there. If you have the, uh, the sermon, uh, the, the notes that were in your bulletin, there's some application questions on the back. And I'd encourage you to look at these. And it really just takes the things that we've talked about and says, how are they working in your life? First of all, I need to ask, have you received saving faith? It needs to start with knowing Jesus as Savior. You can't work for it. You receive it as a gift from God. What cross do you face as you move forward in obedience with God? You probably have a cross that you're facing. There's some area that God's wanting to work on in your life. What does God want to do? What's next? What's the next step for you? And then are you applying serving faith? Have you just received the saving faith and this is great? Or have you nailed down the step of knowing Jesus as Savior and you're willing to serve Him? Go that next step with Him. And then the things that we just talked about, transformation, prayer, the Holy Spirit, being involved in church, are they a part of your life? And so I would encourage you, I know that a number of the community groups discuss the, the sermons um, as you have time, I think the, the Filipino leaders have, have gotten these notes actually ahead of time, and you're going to be discussing them this afternoon. So uh, you, can, uh, you can work on that. But I'd encourage you, individually or as a group, ask yourself these questions so that serving faith can be active in your life. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. We know who you are because of it. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we thank you for that. We thank you for who you've called us to worship. We worship you. We serve you. We adore you. We love you. And Lord, may that call us forward into serving in your kingdom. 
taking up that next challenge, that next cross that you want us to bear for who you want us to become because of you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.